Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey Danny, what's up? What's up? I'll tell you what's up. You've been watching uh, any more shit, you know, movies oh, and, and stuff like movies that. Movies and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm uh, still on my Amazon Prime account and I saw Last Flag Flying just came up on it. And I thought the movie just came out, but then I realized it's an Amazon release, and they've got some insane turnaround where they release it in a bit like Netflix, but just a bit of a longer gap. Future of movies. So they release it in cinemas, and then you know, a couple months later, it's out. So on... this is uh, Richard Linklater's movie about some old guys uh, wanted about. Oh, exactly. So it's Brian Cranston, Steve Carell, and Lawrence Fishburne, and the plot is they're all Vietnam vets who are in the Marine Corps together, and Steve Carell's son who also was a Marine, has been killed in Iraq. This is set in 2003. And so Steve Carell enlists his two army buddies who hasn't seen since the 70s to help him escort the coffin to his final resting place. And it's a kind of very Linklater movie in that it's just like people hanging out. It's like a hangout film, yeah. And it was pretty good. It's basically like a good 90-minute film trapped in a two-hour film, uh-huh. I would say. It's a bit over long. And Brian Cranston's performance is good, but like... He's like a sort of uh, party guy, but he's like really old. It's kind of charming for a bit, but like every scene is him like talking shit all the time. <laughs> so I was like, after two hours, I was like, rain it in, Cranston. Even though you're citing that as one of the failings of the movie, <laughs> it did make me want to see it more. <laughs> yeah, it was good in that it kind of, I'm not sure how successfully it like fully dealt with it, but it kind of gestured towards this idea of how uh, how you romanticize uh, soldiering and like his son died in a needless and stupid way and the parallels between vietnam and iraq are sort of obvious and it's also kind of interesting i mean we'll talk about this a little bit with ladybird to see a movie sent 2003 and it kind of nailed the period there's a bit where, like they listen to like without me comes on the radio and he's like what is this crazy <laughs> rap music uh uh yeah and like mobile phones aren't ubiquitous and stuff like that and just kind of summed up the mood of it's kind of weird because we were like early obviously like 13 and like the world had drastically changed, but I was, you know, focused on more important things like uh, Pokemon. Pokemon was thirteen. What was I interested in when I was thirteen? I don't you, know. You're playing with your yo-yo and your Tamagotchi and uh, your po- your Pogs and <laughs> you skateboarding, weren't you? Yeah. And you were. Um, <laughs> my interests uh, had moved on since I was eight. You so were wearing your, still... your baseball cap backwards. And yeah, you know, Beyblades. My shorts of people and stuff. <laughs> You know, your average, your average, your average naughty kid. <laughs> just, just your naughty's kid. <laughs> your naughty's kid with his interests <laughs> hadn't changed in six or seven years. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the I think it kind of captured the mood really well. So it's worth a watch. It is, you definitely have to be in the mood for it. I mean, it's quite a, it sets out the kind of pace 
it's going to operate at from the off you know it's just like long scenes of people either walking to some place or sitting down in a bar and talking i would say i've seen nothing about the marketing title or anything else about the film suggests that it would be different to that yeah so you should know what you're getting in for but yeah it's a shame it feels a bit like maybe it was a kind of failed oscar grab and amazon thought they had a bit more of an awardsy movie on their hands and so released it not too much like not enough yeah, acclaim well, and so like, everyone loved boyhood out. or something yeah but like richard Lander is sort of like an indie director who just had this one massive breakout hit where like Holly was like he is a great director and then like ah we're not that bothered you know keep on making your movies you know so but i think it's worth a watch if you want my amazon login just give me a dm please don't buy anything though because my credit cards are attached to that so watch what you like <laughs> but uh <laughs> Be responsible. Be responsible. We operate an honor system here on the don't podcast. Don't look at what I've bought, okay? Do not look at my previous Don't look purchases. at my suggested purchases <laughs> Definitely either. don't look at my suggested purchases. Even worse. Yes. Danny, so you're going to have to explain to me what, what I've forgotten what the whole what the podcast is. What? Even though this is episode 153 of it. So, so I'm just sort of sitting here nattering away to you like we always do. But what's the actual point? What's the actual point of this bloody point? What's the point? <laughs> That's the real question. <laughs> I don't know what the point is, but what the podcast is about... <laughs> is uh, while Film Chats a podcast set in the future where significant advances in science and technology have been made. Ex-soldier Sam Foster, that's you, wakes up in the back of a van next to a young boy called Alex who is being held prisoner. Strangely, the boy seems to think that he is the kidnapper, though Sam has no memory of ever having seen the boy before. After freeing the boy and attempting to figure out what has happened to him, he blacks out again and, and awakes in a room with a mysterious young man called Danny Moran, who seems to think he's someone else. There's a common thread appearing here. Uh, when Danny discovers who he really is, he disables Sam and knocks him out. Sam then wakes up... Again. Again. Okay. In a mysterious bedroom, having sex with a beautiful young woman. <coughs> the girl identifies herself as a prostitute named Dana, who seems to remember meeting and engaging in sexual activity with a much more violent and sociopathic version of Sam. He tries to explain his predicament, but she remains sceptical. Nah, I don't know about this. <laughs> he asked her to come with him, but she says she cannot leave as she is the property of Russian gangster Sergio. Classic, <laughs> classic Russian name. Sam offers to free her if she will help him solve the mystery that, that has become of his life. The team managed to escape, but Sam again loses consciousness when the what, mind control system reboots. That's what I would be saying. This is a adaptation of the first 25 minutes of The Anomaly. <laughs> Which currently has a Rotten Tomatoes score of zero percent, based good. on based on sixteen reviews. This is in fact just a podcast where we talk about and review films. I'm Danny Moran, and joining me is a man who will transport somewhere else in nine minutes and forty seven seconds time. Sam Foster. That sounds fucking awesome, but it's not a problem. We take about an hour to record the podcast, so I really don't think that's going to be an issue this week. Danny and I will be reviewing Greta Gerwig's coming of age tale, Lady Bird, a film which teaches that adolescence is a difficult, confusing an occasionally melancholic period, but when you grow up, you realize that the rest of your life is also just exactly like that. Uh, plus, Danny will tell me all about the BAFTAs, which I missed because I was binge-watching that TV show where Richard Griffiths is a chef who solves crimes or something. Pie in the sky? Pie in the sky. I wasn't really doing that. Uh, just came to mind when I was writing this. And uh, we'll have a look at another exciting upcoming project, something we like to do a lot, this time from the Hot as the Sun Right Now pair of Michael B. Jordan and Ryan Coogler. And we'll look forward to a probably less exciting project, a movie constructed entirely from Terrence Malick deleted scenes, which sounds like the premise of an SNL sketch, but apparently is a real thing that's going to come out. All that should leave just enough time for me to announce my own awards ceremony, which I will be 
making up for some of the injustices in the rest of the major awards season, um, accounting for some of the snubs. And it's going to be called the Foster Awards. And every single award will go to the flute scene from Alien Covenant. Hold it like so. Nice and easy. Now compress your lips to create your embouchure. Enough for the tip of your little finger. And blow into the hole gently. Like so. Of course. Because that's the major injustice, is the lack of awards recognition for that. So, um, Well, Billy Scott got the Fellowship Award, but I think secretly it was... Well, he should have got it, Best Director. He should have got Best Director. For that scene. I didn't cover the rest of the movie... But this scene where Michael Fassbender erotically teaches a clone of himself to play the flute is the scene, not only this year, but probably of all time. So he should have gotten Best Director for that. Best Score, obviously the flute bit that he plays on the flute. Um, Best Actor, he can't give that to Fassbender because he's a domestic abuser, so the flute will be the (laughs) best. The flute will be the best actor in my awards ceremony. Um, And so on and so forth. I guess there won't be as many surprises as in most ceremonies. There's no other nominees um but we do have i won't be presenting it myself but we do have the uh world famous irish virtuoso flautist james galway he'll be there presenting it he'll be the sort of mc and every time someone goes up to the stage he'll play a little bit of the flute he'll play that bit the one little bit of flute music and then as they he sort of if they if they start talking too long he'll he'll play them off <laughs> Wait a second, so there's music when they come on music when the music like underscoring their speeches <laughs> How, how do they know when they've gone on too long? No, no, there's no music underscoring the speeches. It's just, it kicks back in. The same flute theme. The award-winning best score in my they, ceremony. I think there should be three flute scenes. Like, one for the getting to the stage, <laughs> one underscoring the speech, and one if you've gone on too long. So if there's a shift in the chord progression, that's when you know. Maybe it should be the same music, but he just plays it on a different instrument, like a deeper a deeper one while they're actually on the stage, so it sounds a bit more rumbly. <laughs> and, then he's, and then like a piccolo on the way out. Something really piercing that you can't really talk over. I think that's a great idea. Bravo! You have symphonies in you, brother. Thanks a lot. Well, anyway, that's coming up. That's coming I'll up come later. If I'm invited. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're absolutely invited, Danny. I think you, I think no one else is going to be there. Actually. <laughs> so, Are you hosting it right after after we record this? It's part. It's part of the podcast. It's part of the podcast. If yeah, it gets, absolutely. if it's not on, if it's not on this recording, it's because it's been taken down by Acast. Uh, just because they won't, they just won't let great things happen. You know, they're just a bunch of bloody censors. And I do appreciate them hosting this this podcast on their platform, but at the same time, they've cut out all the best stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's been some great stuff that we have not been able to get through the bloody Acast people. Wankers, wankers. Danny, have you been following any of the conversation about Black Panther after after the movie came out? Because we we reviewed it, or we recorded our review of it quite soon after the movie had come out. When it was actually before the movie had come out in the US, so all the really juicy conversation yeah, yeah. around it occurred um, after we'd recorded. And there's been a bunch of good stuff. Have you been following any any of that? Uh, well, mainly just the outpouring of like love for it. I've seen a lot of Wakanda Forever hashtags, and I listened to the still processing episode where they had. Uh, Remind me of his name, super cool black scholar. Tanahisi Coates. Tanahisi Coates, who wrote the most recent run of the comic talking about the movie and its importance. 
And now they were so into the movie, I was like, this film is the best one of all time. <laughs> Wait a second, I've got to go back and re-record my opinion. Yeah, their enthusiasm for it was quite, was quite infectious. But I have seen there's been a few... Uh, you know, rumblings of not really a backlash. So well, I speak, saw but... so so I saw on my Twitter feed, which is you know carefully curated to contain only the most right-on and politically <laughs> radical people, uh, that there were a few um, uh, sort of takes that Black Panther was right-wing or that it was reactionary or something, which had not been obvious to me when I was watching the movie. So I was curious to see what it was, and fortunately, our good friend Tom Dewhurst, um, who's obviously you know sharper on these on these matters than than I was in the cinema and uh, tweeted his Black Panther summary and then asked us for an opinion on it. And it's actually a very good praise of the general kind of uh, sort of left critique of the movie. He said, Black Panther summary, um, poor black migrant guy seeking to end oppression, bad. Rich white CIA guy seeking to oppress, good. LGBT people, invisible. Strange doublespeak politics, but otherwise good to see a blockbuster try to engage with race and gender politics. So this is something that I've actually seen in a couple of other places where people have been pointing out that uh, the character of Killmonger, Michael B. Jordan's character, basically wants to um, arm oppressed black people and have them rise up against their oppressors, and and that's his plan. Sure. And uh, that's a kind of version of a sort of radical, like, revolutionary politics against white supremacy, which a lot of people have a lot of sympathy for, and they were saying that you should not be making that the villain's plan in, in in your film especially when one of the heroes of the movie works for the cia like it does like that's completely upside down and there was other people complaining about like the fact that the well this is i don't i don't want to strain to spoiler territory but like the way that the movie ends is too um the it's, it's violent in a way that's like directed against the wrong targets you know yeah and uh i saw like another another tweet from somebody which i would just uh, paraphrase that kind of amused me where a guy was like, my favorite bit of Black Panther is when, uh, right at the end, when he turns to the camera and says, I'm a communist now. And then he explains that he is the exact same kind of communist as I am. <laughs> and he was kind of like po- poking fun at uh, that some reactions is basically saying like, oh, well, you know, of course, it's not going to be like a radical communist film about overthrowing you know, the capitalist oppressors. It's like a Hollywood movie. Yeah. yeah. And you simply can't, cannot expect it to to operate in that way. But nevertheless, I mean, I can kind of see... Th- I can I can definitely understand that take, and I don't think it's entirely incorrect. No, but I kind of read it as his sort of... Uh, his motivation is sort of righteous, but his actions are immoral. Yeah. Killmonger's sort of thing. And, like... Uh, yeah, like, it's almost... Uh, sort of the, the difference is that Chadwick Boseman believes that you should engage with the world, but in a sort of diplomatic, peaceful way. I don't know. Yeah, well, exactly. But I don't I think, know, like, but he's like, he's, he's, I mean, in a way, it's like posits this, you know, a liberal versus a radical is kind of the, the thing. And the movie takes this is like the liberal as the hero. Yeah. And it's like, what I, the thing, the thing that I thought was, um, you know, good or powerful about the movie is just the fact that, you know, you might not agree with the more like liberal stance the movie takes, but it still feels quite exciting to have that power put in the hands of black people to make those decisions yeah so the the movie is like about the you know the discussion that that goes on like within like wakanda about how to emancipate the black people of the world or whatever like that is uh just that they can have that discussion is itself quite exciting and cool even if you don't necessarily agree with like the decisions they make or you think that it's coming from a too too liberal an angle or whatever do you think people have this are upset about this element of the plot because 
it's called Black Panther, and the Black Panthers were radicals. <laughs> there's some, <laughs> there's some like, interesting history there, because I think, like, the comic came out at, like, the, exactly the same time the Black Panther Party was founded. All right, it's not like, you know, one's named after the other. No, no, just... I don't think so. I think, I think it's a coincidence, but I'm not entirely sure of the, the origins of it. But... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's like Stanley, Stanley created, right? Yeah, him and Jack Kirby. But it's like a bit like the X Men thing of like Magneto and uh, Charles Xavier were like the only two people they can reference comic books are like MLK or um, Malcolm X. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, like yeah. The same sort of thing. Yeah, but yeah. Like I don't know, the difference of opinions kind of what makes the movie good, but. What, what, I, what I was going to say is that I think it's an interesting contrast between the Killmonger character in this and a character like, this is, a, you know, just a bit of a automatic knee-jerk um, example, uh, the villain from Kingsman. I know we always love to reference Kingsman whenever yeah. you possibly can as a, as a bad version of something. But in uh, the first Kingsman movie, and even in the second Kingsman movie, the, the villains have, like, nominally good or laudable aims. So in the, in the second one, Julianne Moore is fighting to end the drug war which would be legalized drugs wants to legalize drugs and samuel L. jackson wants to battle global warming or he's worried about global overpopulation or something like that in uh, in kingsman um and but they're you know they're, their methods are really evil or whatever and so there's a sort of surface similarity to in black panther the bad that like killmonger has laudable aims but his methods are bad but in the kingsman movies it's that's used as just a kind of way to uh, be a bit cheeky or kind of tease you or just be fun and you know provocative by having somebody who wants to end global warming be really evil or whatever but in this movie the sympathies like you don't really feel like the makers of the movie care about global warming or the drugs or anything yeah, like yeah, that yeah. but but in this film they the, the the filmmakers have such strong and obvious sympathies with the character like it's not just this surface level of like you know screenwriting 101 sympathetic villain like make you understand him or whatever but they they give him some of the best lines in the film. Yeah, well, his last line is the best line in the his movie. His last line is the best line in the movie, exactly, yeah. Um, and I think it, it's obvious that they are in two minds about it. And I think the fact that people feel so... Like, there's obviously people who feel really strongly, like, outraged that somebody who is so correct can be made the villain. But I think that, you know, being that horrified is almost a sign of what a good job they did in a way because you um, his politics, as they're put across in the movie, are very powerful and very convincing. And that, you know, if you can kind of cut away the like um, automatic Hollywood nature of it, the fact that, you know, a guy like that is, is too radical to be in a Hollywood movie as anything except a bad guy, but he's still held up as like basically correct, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think there's, you know, you can, the sort of language of Hollywood blockbusters forces things to go in a certain direction. And it's a similar thing with the CIA guy where it's like, you can't really have the US be evil, like, you know, and he kind of represents the US, but it is still cool to have a CIA agent in a movie who's being pushed around by an African nation and is like yeah, but subordinate it, yeah, to them. and also I think he's the sort of trope of like he's the one good guy at the bureau almost. Like his organization might be a bit corrupt and shit, but he's like right on and okay. Yeah, although they know, don't. Like, I mean, they don't really. It's not, it's not really about him. Not so, really about know. him. Yeah, but like, I mean, they kind of like there's this throwaway line that you know the CIA topples governments, whatever, which I always find kind of funny. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, he's trained to topple governments. They, they always have these things in, like, Hollywood movies yeah. where they just offhandedly mention that, like, oh, by the way, this AI is super evil. Yeah, but yeah. it's never, like, you know, no one no one ever blinks twice at it. Everyone's like, yes, I, I completely agree with that, and it doesn't change or challenge me in any way. It's just that's how things are, you know. Yeah. And weird. the LGBT rep- or lack of LGBT representation is a problem, but that's true of every Marvel film. Yes. And I guess maybe... It's true of Black Panther, and it was uh, yeah, true of them all. And maybe, yeah. 
it's like more so of this because it's so uh progressive in every other respect that yeah like shame. it feels like they really went out of their way to make the representation of women really good in the movie and i, I, I so seem to remember to make another 18 films and then then it's there be might perfect, be a gay you know? a superhero yeah. yeah um i think that there was some kind of mooted um subplot or some reference to um homosexuality in black panther that didn't make it into the movie but i can't remember the details of that I think i saw some whisperings to that effect but it's true it's definitely feels definitely where, a shame um danny kalui gives black panther like a hand jump on the beach <laughs> at yeah, night most beautiful most beautiful scene of the year yeah but then they just realized they'd ripped off moonlight like oh shit just before we started recording i actually saw there's some headline that was like the one scene that ryan coogler fought to keep in black panther <laughs> and lost or something so maybe, maybe that was it i haven't yet investigated what that is okay well, you know, we can't be we can't be expected to research these things. Anyway, I mean, this has obviously been a great and insightful discussion about Black Panther, but I do. We're tackling all the issues on you: race, sexism, inequality. Yes. People come to our podcast for like you know the right opinions yes. from two very clued up guys with very really a guy really who got clear cut. a guy who got a lot of sleep last night <laughs> and really knows what he's talking about and has prepared it very carefully. Um, but it, but I do recommend that everyone listens to that still processing episode i thought it was really interesting they have some good good. they have some good chats superhero films announced casting rumors leaking out m night Shyamalan's film is hated paul thomas anderson's is fated meryl streep's oscar tips matt damon's in a viral vid michael bay's made a mint that's the news that's fit to print did you see the BAFTAs? You didn't see the BAFTAs. Did I didn't see the BAFTAs. We were going to see it together, but I bailed on you, so I didn't didn't go to the BAFTAs with you. I didn't see Joe Lums doing her gags, and I didn't see everyone in their nice clothes and uh, stuff. You missed out. Were they doing the Times Up thing again? Was everyone in black? Uh, yeah, m- mainly. And there's also the Times Up thing where people were bringing, uh, like female activists. Uh, from oh, cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it was because we was watching. I was watching this around Dan's house. Dan's flat, formerly Dual's flat. Uh, that's important. In case you want to know, in case you want to know, you want to know. And we're watching the red carpet footage, and it was a bit like the activists were just like this year's hottest accessory. It's like, what do you said? What are you wearing? It's like, what are you? What have you brought? It's like, well, my activist uh, for gender mutilation and whatever, and like my, yeah. my activist, this the uh, you know, uh, the maiden Dagenham strikers, and you know. It's a bit like, you know, the sort of intersection of politics and a completely frivolous night, which means nothing, you know. Sometimes the yeah they don't quite go. Maybe together. this time at the Oscars, Jimmy Kimmel will just bring in a group of like imprisoned dissidents or something <laughs> yeah, like that, yeah. like suddenly just to meet the celebrities. Yeah, he frees them. He frees them. Yeah. They, they think they're being translated to uh, Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> <laughs> but they're coming to the Oscars. Uh so that was quite funny. Uh Jay Lums. Jonah Lumley, bless her. I think she's got the same writers as Stephen Fry. So it's a similar thing where everybody was introduced about knowing adjectives. You like, know, I am quivering with undulating adulation <laughs> for this splendiferous. It's like, Jesus, just get to it. You know? Just like, absolutely the worst mode of speech possible. I mean, I just felt bad for her. I think there's a difference. When Stephen Fry does it, I just thought that was just him. Uh, but and like when, when Joanna Lumley did it, I just felt bad for her. She was like doing her best to like you know put enough energy into this. Do you think terrible... they'd already written it like well in advance, and then like Stephen Fry course, pulls yeah. out, and they were like, "Well, I'm not changing this. I'm, I'm not rewriting this. You can't have anyone with a remotely different manner. It's still gonna be the poshest person possible." Yeah, it feels it... a bit like all the Hollywood celebrities have gone to like a British theme park or something like that. You know? Yeah, yeah. And it's like they won't really feel like they, they you know it was worth it for them to come to London unless they have the world's poshest person sort yeah, of babbling and like, at them. Um, 
the prince prince william is the head of bafta now so he introduces the fellowship at the end it's like couldn't be more like a bunch of lovies and you know yeah raw to the nines raw to the nines <laughs> can i get the hashtag going <laughs> Uh, but as for the awards themselves, I was a little disappointed. There was a lot of uh, love for free billboards, which we've discussed. We don't think it's worthy of awards. No. And um, Shape of Water as well got a bunch of awards. Didn't care for it. The highlight was Daniel Kaluuya winning uh, the E Rising Star Award. He gave a great speech thanking his mum, thanking UK Arts Funding. Very right on. And I think the best thing about it was that like he like he's like, mum, this is for you. And they just cut to Dan Lewis' mum, and she seemed like a bit unfazed. It's like, God, your mum's fucking cool. Like, the apple has not fallen far from the tree. Like, of course your mum is like, this is like, ice cold. Like, woman's like, you know, everyone's like cheering. She's just like, yeah. just like nods and like smiling. He's like, yeah. I'd like to thank Andrew Curlin. I'd like to thank my friends. I thank you for supporting me, and I hope I support you as much as I feel supported by you. I'd like to thank my sister. I'd like to thank Critch. And I'd like to thank my mum. My mum is the reason. Levels, no, I don't. Mum, mum, you're the reason why I started, you're the reason why I'm here, and you're the reason why I keep going. Do you understand? Thank you for everything. And I'd like to thank this award, and this is yours. Yours. Love, peace, let's get it. But the other highlight, which made the evening for me, was when they were announcing Best Film which was presented by Daniel Craig, and I think he's a he's I think he's had work done. This is like not a serious film debate, but his he was face was looking bloated. Shut up, Danny. We, this is serious. We talk about serious shit. All right, I don't I don't want to hear about this. No, I, actually, I think I saw I feel like I've I saw some uh, some murmurs about this on Twitter as well. That I didn't understand. So he looks fucking weird. He looks weird. His face looks bloated. But don't don't you feel like he'd already all of it, the contours of his face had already become deepened and you know craggy well, and, no, and no, weird because that's of the thing. The... He's not craggy. They've kind of like been smoothed out. It's like his well, maybe body's he's just gone back. And he's just... out of a river. Oh or something. dear, that's not a good look, is it? <laughs> drowned, drowned look. That's not what you want. <laughs> I might, might be overstaying it. Anyway, yeah. he was there to introduce some um, best film and. Obviously, they showed, you know, little clips from each of the nominees. But the clip they showed for Darkest Hour was the Up, up Your Bum. bum. Up oh, your my bum God. Bit. That's so good. And it was kind of brilliant because it just exposed how fucking stupid that movie was. Like, <laughs> the other nominees. Like, all the other ones had, like, quite serious clips that suggest... Even Free Billboards, you know, was one of the better dialogue scenes. Which yeah. suggests, like, you know, maybe not the film it is, but, like, an adult film worthy of awards. But the Darkest Hour was just him saying... Up Your Bum! That's so good. It was brilliant. I'm delighted to hear that. Yeah. Gary won, of course. Scene of, of the year. Actually, I might have to work that one into my um, into my awards ceremony. Most of it's going to be the flute scene, but I feel like Up Your Bum deserves something, like Rising Star or something. Yeah. Other than that, everything kind of went as you expected. Yeah. You no. missed you missed nothing, Jemais. To be honest, man. Maybe it was a, a good mood to bail. But you, so there so there, there weren't any like among the lads. I'm sure there were good it. lad bands, and I'm sorry to have missed them. Uh, but we're having them now, aren't we? We're having good bands now. So yes, yes, I'm, we are. <laughs> I'm making up with that now. Uh, were, there, were there any big uh, narratives that come out of it? In, like, so big surprises, snubs, anything like that? Or was it just kind of... Not really. I guess, I think people thought Free Billboards was like, the the success was waning slightly. You know, it was a big front runner like a month ago. But the fact Martin McDonough didn't get like a best directing nod for Oscars suggested that people were like losing interest in it. Yeah. I don't know because it was like the home movie. I mean, it won best British film and best film, which seems ridiculous. That's fucking stupid. It's, yeah. yeah, it's really stupid. And also, um, Best British Film is kind of there to highlight a sort of, you know, underseen movie. So to give it that over, like, Lady Macbeth or God's Own Country or The Ghoul. And every, you know, every actor in it is American. Yeah. Just just the funding was British. Just the, Yeah, I don't know. It seems lame, doesn't it? 
Yeah. So that was annoying. Uh, Dugan McQueen pointed out that Mark McDonough just looks like an evil version of Sting. That <laughs> made me laugh. Evil Sting. Now I can't unsee it. Yeah. If only this was a visual. Actually, I think on Acast you can drop in little images. Okay. Well, I'm, not, on I'm probably not going to do that, am I? <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But I could have done it. So if you're listening to this on Acast and you're looking at the logo, just it could have been a picture of that. But you have to go into an open a new tab, Google it. I'm not your fucking slave. Google it. Another charming bit was when James Ivory won for Best Adapted Screenplay. And he's, you know, he's Ivory of Ivory, Merchant Ivory, the Ivory Merchants. Uh, <laughs> he's old as fuck. And uh, he had trouble getting up and Timothy Chalamet helped him up to the stage. And the internet, you know, Twitter was just like, oh, Chalamet. 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 So what, everyone was adapting your term. Everyone was using it. No, well, finally, they were just like, finally taken off. No, I was saying Chalabay, but the content, you know, yeah. if only they had my word to use. <laughs> 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 I'm the only person who have thought of this, sure. To really express themselves. Uh, yeah. What but, screenplay did he write? Uh, Call Me By Your Name. Oh, right. Okay. James Ivory. You can sort of see the James Ivory, like the more traditional room of view version of that movie, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like ab- Luca Guadagnino yeah. has just come in and just, you know, tallied it up. Yeah, I, I, that's a bit reductive to describe no, that's, the style a, that's as like, perfect. Yeah, <laughs> you know, just made it all kind of sensual and interesting and cool. And put some Sir John Stevens and you know, yeah. it could have easily just been like that. Oh, oh, you are you gay? Um, I might be gay. That kind of movie. <laughs> <laughs> but instead, it's got a lot of you know energy to it. That's my little mini review. <laughs> Call me your name. <laughs> <laughs> Check out episode one four eight or something. Yeah, for the rest. why not? It's pretty good. So Ryan Coogler and Michael B. Jordan, everyone is obviously talking about them right now uh, for Black Panther and people are hailing Michael B. Jordan as basically the best thing in the movie. And they have worked together in all of their films. Um, Ryan Coogler's first movie was Fruitvale Station, a film about... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A uh, a young guy who was murdered by a policeman in in a uh, railway station, and that was played by Michael B. Jordan. And uh, then they made Creed, the uh, Rocky movie starring him, and now they're going to team together a fourth time for a film called Wrong Answer. It's an adaptation of a 2014 essay in The New Yorker, written by Rachel Aviv, and it's about a scandal at a uh, school in Atlanta um, in which uh, teachers were cheating test scores, and a bunch of them ended up being arrested. Jordan is going to play a math teacher called Damini Lewis, who, it says in this new story here, struggles under the pressure imposed on his students and school to meet unrealistic standardized testing scores as part of the No Child Left Behind project. In order to save their jobs and prevent their school from shutting down, he joined in an effort to cheat the scores. The scandal led to 11 teachers being convicted on racketeering charges. Um, so this is cool. I think it's, I, I'm really glad to see, actually, like after his huge blockbuster success, he is immediately signing on to this smaller project. Um, dealing with uh, inner city uh, life in a similar way as he has in his previous films. Yeah. It just sounds like perfect material for him, like a lot of dramatic chops and um, something which has not been that widely explored, I don't think, in, uh, yeah, I, in I movies if, so far. You know, how long this project's been in development and whether it struggled beforehand, and now they're like, here's a blank check. Make whatever, Ryan Coogler, you know, here's the keys to the kingdom. 
Do you think Michael B. Jordan? I mean, he's a great actor, but he's fucking huge these days. Well, right? he might have to. Wallace is cut. He might have to e- ease off the. Yeah. Uh, Where Wallace at? The gym, eating twelve the, pounds of protein. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah. He's a math teacher. Well, I think he got even bigger for um, Black Panther than he was for Creed, and he oh was already God. pretty, pretty built but for he's that. He's making like Creed two soon as well. So yeah, how, I don't know. Maybe they just put him s- in like massive jumpers, like Ben Affleck in Gone Girl, yeah. where he looks like unrealistically beefy. So they had to sort of sw- like swathe him and um, yeah, loose, loose fitting clothing. Yeah, um, but yeah, that sounds really cool. Just from my own, I mean, we went to the same school, and it seemed like even when we went to school, there's this whole thing about test results and you know teachers under all this pressure just sort of teach you how to do the exam rather than teach and i just my sister's a teacher and just seems like that culture's got worse and worse yeah and um, i think i there's there's definitely something i mean I, I probably will not express this very well but there's there's a, obviously a lot of black poverty is often blamed on lifestyle you know and yeah. uh which is just code for racism of course but it's like the idea that you know, it's just that they need the right motivations or something like that, or you need to just kind of... a choice, Sam, okay? Yeah, (laughs) you just need to kind of encourage them and give them good incentives and give them, like, a leg up and stuff, and then they will be able to escape um, their their poor roots and, you know, flourish in in America or whatever. Um, And education policy is a key area where this idea plays out because uh, you think that you can just sort of you know even if you don't spend any extra money in schools you can just somehow like create the right kind of tests and stuff in order to improve uh, people's life choices and obviously that can um put uh just a lot of undue pressure on teachers to deliver when it's not possible i mean i'm kind of vaguely talking out of my ass here because i'm not an expert in this but um no no, no just, but that's just the sort of if you just rearrange some of that nonsense uh into more erudite knowledgeable nonsense you can kind of see an outline of where the film might go yeah yeah, <laughs> and the the writer on the movie is going to be Tanahisi Coates, who we mentioned earlier as uh, one of the guests on um, the Still Processing podcast, and also the writer of the comic book uh, most recent Black Panther run. And he's a black scholar intellectual, right? Yeah, he's, he's a he, smart guy. He's a he's a really interesting guy who kind of came out of nowhere to suddenly become like a massive deal. He got the uh, MacArthur Genius Grant at some point in his career. A genius writing this script. So he is a genius. So that's that bodes well, doesn't it? Um and uh, <laughs> <laughs> who do you think we should get the right script? Do you know any geniuses? <laughs> I, I do know one actually. <laughs> um, yeah, and he's he's become very quickly an extremely influential and widely heralded um, a public black intellectual. So well, he's yeah. a genius. Well, he is a genius, so it's not that surprising. Can anyone win one of those? Do you have to be American to get one of these genius grants? Um, I believe you just have to be a genius. But I so don't know. We could get one, maybe, I don't know. Maybe you could be American. I'm not sure. Maybe if they aren't any geniuses this year, then they then they search abroad. They check. They check in America first. And but then McCarthy. This is like the Synecdoche, New York thing, right? We just like exactly do whatever you want for a year, and we'll fund it. I guess so. Yeah, so it's like, like a funding for a big project. I'm not sure right. exactly what he did with his genius grant. But he's been Finally. a he's a columnist for the Atlantic magazine, and yeah, he's written a few like he's written a memoir and lots of stuff. Cool. It'd be a bit of a disappointing thing to use as. I'm sure this isn't what he's using his grant for. Like, what are you? I just wrote a film. Like, <laughs> we were really hoping you'd do something a bit, you know. I believe he. I believe the grant was received earlier on in his career. He's probably spent all that money now. Pretty blew it all. <laughs> probably blew it all. <laughs> blew it on a weekend. Yeah. <laughs> just had a really sick party. Ooh, time for a break from all the film chat. Have a cup of tea, maybe make a. 
quick snack and telephone friends who you know where she's at. Right, that's enough. Now back to film chat. Lady Bird, which is the last of the big Oscar-nominated movies to make the UK shores. This is the directorial debut of Greta Gerwig, and she also wrote it. And but she is the co-writer of Frances Ha and Mistress America, and has been involved sort of behind the camera in some respect before. So it's a debut technically, but she's obviously had some form in this before. And it is about a 17-year-old girl called Christine Lady Bird McPherson, played by Sir Sharonan. Uh, she lives in Sacramento and she's pretty bored of the place and she states early on that she wished she could live somewhere where stuff happens yeah, that suburban malaise which I'm very familiar with I don't know if you are yes Nothing well we, we grew we... up in the Sacramento of southwest London Ham. <laughs> exactly yeah and uh, the film is basically the last year of her at school her senior year and sort of documents her various relationships that kind of define her including her first two boyfriends played by Lucas Hedges and Timothy Chalamet respectively and her relationship with her parents played by Tracy Letts and uh, Laurie Metcalf and the mother-daughter relationship is kind of the spy on the movie and it's kind of like I would hesitate to use the word coming of age because it sounds reductive because I'm not sure if that's really what the film is but it's more as a year in the life but even that I don't know go see it here is a clip of one of the many uh arguments between Christine and her mother, this one at a thrift store. I just think it's such a shame that you're spending your last Thanksgiving with a family you've never met instead of us, but I don't know, I guess you want it that way. Are you tired? No. Hey, Marion. Hey, Joyce. Hey, how's the baby? He's crawling. No, I want to see a picture at checkout. Okay. okay. So if you're tired, we can sit down. I'm not tired. Oh, okay, I just couldn't tell because you were dragging your feet. Well, I just couldn't tell. Why didn't you just say, pick up your feet? I didn't know if you were tired. You were being passive aggressive. No, I wasn't. You are so infuriated. Please stop yelling. I'm not yelling. Oh, it's perfect. I love it. That clip is better than most of the films we reviewed. (laughs) I'm going to say. It was really good. It was really exciting to see the movie because it had a lot of hype behind it. And it's not necessarily the sort of film that normally gets picked up at the Oscars. It looks like one of those, like films that comes out of South by Southwest or something and gets a lot of buzz and then, you know, people like it but doesn't necessarily sweep the awards. Uh, but this one, people have really cottoned on to and Greta Gerwig has the Best Director nomination, has got Best Picture nomination at the Oscars. And so it was quite a relief really to see that it lived up to the hype and I thought it really did. It's got like the contours of, it's got quite a familiar kind of genre uh, contours. Yeah. It's a bit like, um, I mean, maybe something like Juno, you know, it looks a little bit like that, like a sort of precocious kid who's grown up and trying to figure herself out, but is very smart and, you know, eloquent. Um, but it's, uh, I think, a much smarter film where it's like, got a, it's making a much more subtle point about both adolescence, but also just like uh, life generally. Yeah, absolutely. I forgot to mention in the introduction that it's set in 2003, which is... Uh, Presumably around Greta Gerwig's own seventeen adolescence. Yeah, it's clearly highly autobiographical. Um, but yeah, it's kind of fitting in a way that it's set during that period because that's probably the start of this kind of like explosion of indie movies that were kind of around when we were getting into films, which like quickly became quite um, cliched and like Little Miss Sunshine is probably like the breakout one or Juno, like you said. But even those have the kind of like quirky small town characters and acoustic guitar soundtrack, and you know what started off as like a sort of. Uh, interesting indie voice quickly became just another type of movie which Hollywood kind of co-opted. Yeah. Um, but this one, uh, the and the building blocks that you said of Ladybird feel very familiar. 
but it's all imbued with such kind of emotional honesty there's no uh there's nothing arch about it and it's also uh it feels very fresh and at the risk of contradicting myself it's kind of like (laughs) it feels familiar because it's so true to life not because you've seen in other movies yeah and uh it's a film that kind of understands that funny and serious on opposites. And uh, like, like that scene uh, we played just indicates it has, it's got this incredible like deft touch where it like moves, moves between like funny and hilarious and tragic very quickly in a way that feels completely organic. And because it feels so organic, uh, I think it's easier to understand how brilliantly constructed it is. And it's like when you like unpacking the movie afterwards, it's really brilliantly, like put together and something which i think separates it from those other kind of movies it kind of resembles is that it doesn't have the kind of free act structure or familiar character arcs like every scene is sort of impactful and it has this kind of relentless forward motion yeah um it does montage extremely well yeah like, and these types of movies because it has the classic stuff that these movies do like it has graduation it has christmas it has new year you know you can yeah feel time passing in that way but there are no set pieces really they're just all I think they're all given the same amount of emphasis. Yeah, yeah. But it's like when it when it, it really zips along, but in a way that just feels like extremely confident about what's important. And um it doesn't it doesn't feel like it was kind of chopped to pieces and all crammed together in order to feel as fast paced. It just feels like it knows what is important to dwell on and it's it does a really good job of little montage jokes where you can it's almost like glimpses of something that might have been else like a fully a fully realized scene otherwise but it's like you get the point like you know enough and yeah, we'll yeah. just and we'll just move on right away and i really like that i think it avoids a pitfall of um such movies like other kinds of movies about like quirky people or people who feel like out of place or like you know you know i'm in a small town and i kind of got to i've got to escape and that kind of feeling um that there's a kind of contradiction at the heart of those movies in a way because they all seem like they want to be like relatable and you you remember growing up and you sort of feel like you don't fit in you're trying to work out who you are and everything like that but the movies make it too easy for themselves by making their character actually different to everybody else so that yeah. like they they invest the protagonist with a really rich inner life but they encounter all these losers and idiots and people who just want to bring them down you know like jerks at the local store or their own lame parents and stuff so that you will invest in them and you understand why they want to escape but it's kind of saying actually they are the only interesting person in this shithole i mean think of something like nebraska you know yeah which yeah. is a very different kind of story but it's still about this guy who's uh you know it's like almost like fish out of water kind of thing about a guy from the midwest going to oh he's in the midwest or whatever but he's like he's an urban guy who's going to the countryside he's meeting hicks who are like idiots you know yeah and he's in as the movie betrays them exactly but he seems normal um whereas in this film has a much more um honest assessment of that kind of feeling and it's got a lot of um it's it's both like uh more critical in a way of that attitude of like i'm special i'm different to you i should be doing great things um, but it's got like a lot, also a lot more compassion, I think, just for people generally. Yeah. And uh, there are no there are no characters who are just like um, uh, who the movie has no sympathy for, basically. Like yeah, ev- ev- everyone is a human uh, being in this film, <laughs> uh, which is you know sounds like a stupid thing to say, but it's just like um, no, but it's true because like yeah. there's no character that's just like functional. Everyone has like this. And, like, even the smallest characters have, more like, sometimes a couple of moments later on. And you're like, oh, that's a whole person. That's, like, a kind of priest character 
who I feel like in a lesser movie would only be there for one joke. Yeah. But he has another bit after that. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. And kind of rounds exactly. it all out. Well, it's like the, it's sort of about how when in your own life, it's easy to cast yourself as the protagonist of a story and see other people as, as, as like props in it, you know? You're the funny best friend. <laughs> um, but you, uh, and, and that's kind of what uh, Ladybird is doing in the movie. Yeah. And the movie is kind of going out of its way to, 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 to point out that everyone else is a person as well and they all have their own shit going on. And I thought it was a very interesting take on like quirkiness, which isn't just used as a shorthand to make someone interesting like it is in shit films, but instead <laughs> is like a device about um, about kind of like the nature of growing up or like the decisions that you make about about yourself and about who you want to be. Um, and it's, you know, thinking critically about that. Yeah. Uh, and it does that particularly well with the relationship between um, her and her parents and her mother mainly. Uh, but it's sort of to do with the way in which you, you know, your efforts to define yourself as a teenager can seem like hurtful, you know, or like alienating of your of your mother who who's just you know, given everything feels like it's a rejection. If you're like, no, that's not me. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't belong here. I should be somewhere cool. Um, I think the thing that's very impressive about the film is the way that her mother is like really quite like venomous towards her, and you still manage, you're still not unsympathetic whatsoever. Like you're still kind of on board with it. And it does a very good job of knowing exactly how far to push those scenes because they have a tough relationship. It's like quite brutal at times. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't pull its punches. Doesn't pull its punches at all. Uh, but it's never it never feels like it goes overboard or just it's tonally doing it exactly right. Yeah. Um, yeah and it really lands at the end. Like, and the ending is really good. Yeah. It's got a really good ending. Yeah, the performances are all brilliant. I think she's like a sort of genius well it's just like the casting is really good it's like spot on and uh, everyone's in having these roles like completely and i feel like saoirse ronan like it's obviously Frances mcdormand's year but like she is incredible and i've never like she's like the best actress ever i don't know yeah I've she's fantastic absolutely she brilliant the whole it. thing together doing a uh, flawless accent as well her accent is so good that when i hear in interviews i'm like what's with this stupid double <laughs> accent you put on it's just this fake ridiculous you know caricature of what an irish person sounds like and that's actually her accent and uh, Laurie Metcalf as well is incredible. She like I think she's more of a stage actress. I know her as the horny neighbor from Uncle Buck. Mm. And 25 years later, I was like, I underestimated you as an actress. <laughs> <laughs> horny neighbor from Uncle Buck. <laughs> You're incredible. And uh, yeah, the internet's boyfriend, Timothy Chalamet. I mean, like his character is almost as kind of like gesturing to my point slightly, but gesturing encapsulates my point because I feel like in a lesser movie, he's like the sort of douchey guy in a band who's a bit pretentious. And he's like quite... You know, to describe him as quite a broad character, but he actually feels like a complete, authentic person. Yeah, completely. And he has yeah. his own little life as well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I, I, it's a very funny film, and I was very grateful for the jokes. I think because, I mean, maybe this is just uh, my just like me basically. But watching all these movies, especially about like teenagers like having their first relationships and stuff, I feel a huge amount of reflected uh, sort of tension. You know. It's just, I just find it very awkward and people navigate in these difficult, like, social... It's like, it gets better. Things. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it gets better, like, during a bit. Yeah, I always find that stuff extremely painful. And because the film is putting its fingers so carefully on these different emotional pressure points in various different ways, it's in some ways not that relaxing a watch. And all, and all, <laughs> and all, and all the laughs were just like, thank God, you know. And there's one, there is one truly broad character 
um, who's the guy who's like a football coach who ends up running their like theater thing. And that's basically the, it's a bit like a Father Ted joke. Yeah. It's like a priest who's, a, who's, a, who's got the manner of a football coach, but is directing a play. And uh, it's, I mean, you know, there's not a lot of like emotional layers to that one, but <laughs> I was so, I, he's both, he's hilarious, but also I was like, finally, just a moment where I'm not having to ha- have any emotional intelligence whatsoever. I can just cackle at this stupid bellowing man. <laughs> Look for in a film. Cackless, you bellowing man. Uh, yes, I loved it. Yeah, I, I was I was thoroughly impressed. I feel you know it's probably my it might be my favorite of the Oscar nominated movies. I feel like it's a movie like it's already been like embraced by so many people. But it does when you're watching, you feel like oh this I I wouldn't be surprised if this is someone's favorite film. You know what I mean? Like it just sort of. It just really really nails what it's going for. I yeah. can imagine you know watching this movie another five times. I think like just like a good hangout movie, you know, you know the characters so completely that yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Every time you watch it, you're. Um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure of this, but let me, let me raise it with you. Go on. Do you think like one thing that may, distinguishes it from those like mid noughties uh, similar like indie dramas is not just that it's a better made film or that it feels more emotionally intelligent, but that it's like more willing to confront the kind of unhappiness that it's portraying. I mean, one of the things that it slightly reminded me of was like Rushmore or something like that. Or like that Wes Anderson thing of like yeah. everyone is you know kind of miserable, but they're all you know put they're all sort of um, just trying to get by, uh, but it's all like under the surface. And everyone in Wes Anderson movies is like turning to the camera in deadpan saying, "I'm going to kill myself," you know. Yeah. Um, and it's a little bit like that, but because it's in this, it's in this very like naturalistic manner. But I felt like that undercurrent of like things are hard, people are sad, is like omnipresent throughout the entire film. And it just felt like there's more of an edge and like hardness to it uh, yeah, than, than almost any. Of, yeah. So it's like not just that it's better made, but it is kind of grimmer as well in a lot of ways. And I was wondering if that makes it feel like a more contemporary film that we are like, I feel like there's more sort of an acknowledgement of, um, you know, like mental health issues and things like that. People yeah. discuss those a lot more, um, you know, for young people and people generally and like high rates of suicide and things like that. And it's at a time when people are questioning more like the system in which they live, you know, in that sort of post 2008 world where everyone is kind of aware that this does not work and it's completely fucked and the problems have not been solved at all and they've only gotten worse. And uh, and so like making this kind of movie now, even though it's set in 2003, it feels more sort of appropriate that it should be unflinching about the difficulties, both material and psychological that people face in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's absolutely true. Oh, good, good. Glad you guys agree with me. I Don't challenge think that. In a slightly uh, less important point, like, <laughs> uh, is the sort of thing where those movies made in the noughties are made by directors, like Gen X directors from the 90s. So the, it's like how the uh, 80s is the 50s. Yeah. Whereas like Greta Gerwig is actually <laughs> from the noughties. So it is authentically noughties. Yeah. Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. In a way, those naughty movies are actually the 90s. You see my point here? No, like, no, no, no. I, I completely, I completely see your point. And it's like, you know, we didn't have grunge in 2004, okay? So. Yeah. Juno grew up and directed Juno. Exactly. This is it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Juno is made by Juno. Whereas yeah. Lady Bird is made by Lady Bird. <laughs> but, you know. She had the decency to backdate her. Well, you know what I'm trying to say here. Yeah. Did you just uh, cut it? I, mean, I just rambled. I just cut all of that. Cut all of that. Did you cry? Yeah. What, oh yeah. What was your What was your number one tear moment? 
if you can allude to it. It's towards the end. It's a scene in the car. The car scene. That's a good, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. That's an emotionally impactful scene. You know, the one that I found kind of came out of nowhere and I was like, oh shit, it's got me. I've been got. You know, just like, it was like a drive-by. You fucking got me. Like, you fucking got me. Back of the head. Execution <laughs> style. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, it's the bit when uh, Lucas Hedges uh, goes to see her at the coffee shop and then he uh, meets her around the back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That got me. Oh, got me. <laughs> got me right in the feels. Fucking point blank range. Just boom. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely brutal. Merciless. Just, just cold-blooded slaughter. <laughs> <laughs> Emotional assassination. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, it's, that is as much to say as you should see the movie. It's good. Yeah, it's brilliant. Take your mother. Do you reckon your mum would like it? Would it be, is this my a, is this a go, Louise Moran film? My mum wanted to go see it, but I was like, I've already seen it. I was like, take Amy, your mother and daughter, you know? Shit, perfect. Go and cry it, you know? Do they have a fractious relationship? Yeah, I think they're sort of basically fine, but... But did they, you know, at the, at the time, at this age, when when Amy was 17, what was it like? Yeah, let me tell you a lot about my sister's <laughs> <laughs> She went a bit off the deep end for a bit. Uh, definitely. Did she ever give herself an, a sort of weird nickname? No, but, you know, just was a bit of a tearaway for a few months, probably. I was the normal one. Normal one? Yeah. We're all normal. Let's not, <laughs> let's not shame. <laughs> but you're, at, you're always at home, ready for dinner. Where's that Amy? Uh, working, oh, she's out again. You here. know, studying really hard for my levels. <laughs> <laughs> Organising my pens, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just being a good, li- good little lad. <laughs> If I'd done my homework, maybe watch uh, the Jonathan Ross show, you know? Yeah. Or if I'd, only if I'd done my homework. Yeah. And then you, t- you turn to say something to your sister, but she's out. She's not there. She's getting so, drunk. Oh, you... She's taking hard drugs. <laughs> she's she's being violent. <laughs> she's committing serious crimes. <laughs> I'm um... emphasizing these words. <laughs> it's a hard drug. Committed serious <laughs> crimes. <laughs> she's She's killing. She's kidnapping people and killing yeah. them yeah she killed and maimed <laughs> a few people but she's she's over that stage of her life now she's a teacher you know she's yeah. it out. <laughs> she's fine now well yeah i'm sure she really enjoys seeing that movie with your mom i bet they have a lot to reminisce about afterwards yesterday i bumped into imelda staunton she was up with her dog and we got talking i asked her what she does when she isn't acting she said she likes podcasts for relaxing imelda when you're in the mood what do you listen to? She said, I listen to one podcast, I listen to one podcast, all the other ones can kiss my ass, it's I listen to one podcast. Film chat, film chat, film chat, film chat, film chat. So, news dropped this week of an intriguing upcoming film. What? The um, weirdo uh, acclaimed director, Terence Malick, he has been making a string of films which have very famous people in it. As far as I can tell, nobody is watching them. His most recent one was Night of Cups with Christian Bale in it, right? Was that his most recent one? Or he made one no, he then? made Song to Song. This is the problem song of Songs? Song of Song. song the Ryan Gosling, song Fassbender one. Oh, yeah. Gosling and Fassbender. Did that yeah, come out? That came out. That so, came out. Someone's Bloody hell. If you want the lawyer, I'll send it to you. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's just absolutely churning these guys out. I mean, he used to like only make one film every like generation, and now, <laughs> and now he's just uh, just dropping them constantly. Yeah, so not much acclaim. So I not think, much notice I, of any I think kind. there's like an, a fringe critical reading, which is that he's now so good that like we can't even appreciate. They look like absolute garbage, but <laughs> in 20 years' time, we're going to read... Oh, shit, it's like what people say about Spielberg, Spielberg, you know, it's like, oh, we just take him for granted now. And every new film he makes is just as good as like his old classics. No. No, no mate. He's been making mediocre films 
Uh, and well, I mean, I can't really say because I haven't been watching these. Like, I don't watch the trailers and be like, can't wait to see this. See this like very wide angle lens camera roaming about going straight up Ben Affleck's nostrils or something like. Well, like his, I feel, I don't know if you know who's imitating who, but I feel like his style is like, indistinguishable from like someone on Tumblr these days. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> like filming their girlfriend by a beach or something. It's like a sort of soppy teenager's visual yeah, 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 yeah. aesthetic. I don't know if, you know, just all those moody teens watch Tree of Life. I'm like, oh yeah, man, I get it. And just, you know, copied it. But anyway, so one, one such film that nobody really watched was To the Wonder. That was the Ben Affleck one, right? With Olga Kurilenko in it. And maybe uh, some other famous Rachel people. Rachel Weisz in it, but she got cut. Rachel Weisz got cut. Weisz got cut. Weisz got cut. Um, got cut. And uh, one of the characters who did not get cut, but appeared mainly in voiceover, was Javi Bardem, who <laughs> plays a conflicted priest. Malik loves voiceover. Um, apparently, he meditated a lot on the nature of faith and love. Very unusual themes for, for Terence to dwell upon. Anyway, so a film uh, debut is going to debut at the upcoming South by Southwest festival called Thy Kingdom Come. This turns out to be a spin-off of sorts of To the Wonder, which is directed by a guy called Eugene Richards and consists entirely of deleted scenes from To the Wonder featuring uh, Javier Bardem's character. Wow. Let's hear a little bit of the trailer. As I say, I'm not here to scold or judge. Just here to listen. And understand. So what is going on here is uh, it's directed by this guy Eugene Richards who was a photojournalist who was contacted by Malik when he was making To The Wonder and he wanted him to go and track down real people um, in Oklahoma and uh, Javier Bardem in character as this priest would then go and interview them. And then when the movie came out, Malik was like, like uh, it just didn't fit his vision, I guess, anymore. Didn't want those real uh, people getting interviewed by Javier Bardem. Yeah, exactly. So, so uh, that was all cut, and he decided to essentially cut that into an entirely new film, which consists solely of Bardem interviewing people. Uh, an elderly woman speaks to Bardem about her happy marriage. A mother remembers the night she fell asleep and her child drowned. Thank goodness. Jesus. A woman tells Bardem about her sexual assaults, and one interview subject is a former Ku Klux Klan member who speaks of his decision to renounce his past. I mean, that actually sounds kind of... In- I mean, it sounds absolutely weird as hell, but yeah. kind of intriguing. It's a bit like a just a regular documentary, but instead of Nick Broomfield, it's Javier Bardem <laughs> as a fictional priest. Yeah. You know? It's a bit... It's like, it's like, it's like some sort of um, dispatches thing or... Yeah, yeah. Not dispatches. What's the BBC for? Storyville? You know, it's yeah, a bit like yeah, Storyville yeah. or something like that. But it's like, but but it's like a, a Hollywood A-lister <laughs> pretending to be a priest, and he's doing it. Yeah, it's a weird one. I don't know. I mean, I guess the proof will be in the pudding, but I don't know if you end up watching it. It's like, shouldn't these people be talking to a counselor or somebody like a qualified professional, <laughs> and not just an actor pretending to be a priest? Not just a guy who's put on a priest rose, like, and he's not one. Yeah. It would be beautifully shot, though, right? Emmanuel Lubisky uh, directs all of Terence Max movies, so the yeah. lighting will be on point. If I'm nothing sure, else, I, I'm sure. I'm sure it will be. Yeah. So an intriguing prospect. Just thought, you know, I, I saw that crop up. It would be like, great if it was like hugely acclaimed, more so than like that. Would be so good if it had like much more <laughs> critical and commercial attention than any of Terence Max's actual films. Well, that he could have thrown out everything else he'd made 
only released. He famously bit. shoots like you know hours and hours and hours of footage. So I'm sure it's perfectly possible to construct entirely different films out of the stuff he just throws out. Yeah, just get you know, just like an edit, put it all online and let the uh, Reddit community just make a new film. Just make a new film from the offshoots of the Thin Red Line with Adrian Brody or something. Well, yeah, of course he was the lead. Yeah, so you probably could make, fact, it about make him. the original film. Yeah, just make it into the original <laughs> film. Just get the guy who did the men's only cut of Star Wars. Oh yeah, <laughs> you mean what the, uh, the greatest editor of, the greatest of, editor of all times? Time. Yeah, and get him to do the Brody cut of the uh, Thin Red Line. <laughs> yeah, the men only cut of that war film. <laughs> Brilliant. Anyway, friends, we are drawing to the close of this week's episode of Film Chat. Next week, I've got another date with my mum. Hot mum date. What's gonna, your mum film? I'm going to go see the film Finding Your Feet. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Um, Staunton, like, can new... I guess what it's about? Absolutely. Uh, a woman is in a car accident. and Her feet are... Pun. All right. So, so that's... Well, it would have been... Do you think it would be better if she was, she was <laughs> hunting for her severed feet? <laughs> Isn't that be a better film? Taking a very literal approach to that <laughs> title. Now, as far as I can tell, Amanda Staunton is a woman who moves into moves in with her sister following a divorce or something, mm-hmm. and some sort of streetcar named Desire sort of uh, plotline. And they go dancing, and Joanna Lumley's in it, and so is Timothy Spall. And it looked very gentle and very British. Thing is, they they trailed it before the darkest hour. The problem with taking my home to these movies is that they they know their audience, right? So they just trail some other fucking movie she wants to see. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Just when I think I'm out, the like, suckers. Fine. I watch the darkest hour. It's like, oh, I would quite like to see the other films. Like, nah, God. and she always wants to see the fucking ads. She loves the ads because she just doesn't, you know. Does she love YouTube like just the trailers, or she loves all the ads? She likes to. She's in for the whole experience. And I'm like, mom, let's just go. Like, if the movie's starting at twelve, she's like, we're gonna be there at twelve. It's like it's not gonna be on for like half an hour. It's like. Like, no, no. Cinema ads are garbage as well. I absolutely hate them. I hate how they're all little films trying to make you cry. Fuck you. Fuck you. And uh, what else? Oh, the Duncan Jones movie Mute is out on Friday. Uh, Isn't it, like, supposed to be awful? Well, it's on Netflix, and they make nothing but great movies (laughs) on Netflix. (laughs) So I doubt it. I've heard some vague memories that it's unwatchable. Unwatchable? Apparently, yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Well, we'll see. I don't want a middling film. No, no, no. It's got a pretty funny trailer. Uh, with Paul Rudd looking kind of weird in it. It's like a sci-fi movie inspired by Casablanca or something. It's got quite a cool Casablanca poster. So anyway, so yeah, maybe I'll check that one out, see how that turns out. So we will see you then. And if you are hankering to hear more of me and Danny in the meantime, while you're waiting for the next episode to come out, we were on the uh, Hoxton Movies podcast talking about our love of Ghostbusters 2. Do you know how to track this podcast down, Danny? Go iTunes store, Hoxton Movies. We'll be there. We'll be there. We'll iTunes be. Store, Hoxton Movies, check it out, listen to us. We haven't yet recorded it um, uh, as we're speaking, but it will have happened. Hopefully it would have been good. You know, I, I, I hope and pray as I'm currently encouraging people to go see it. So if it was an embarrassing like nightmare that I will never live down, I just, I've just really fucked myself by telling you to listen to it. But I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah, probably fine. All right. All right. All right, bye. Goodbye. Let's do it. Christopher, you work with Terry Malick once, didn't you? Yes. On uh, The New yeah. Land? Yeah. What, how, what kind of experience was that? Curious. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, he's, he's quite an extraordinary guy, and I loved some of his movies. Right? And, uh, but the problem with Terry, which I soon found, uh, is that he needs a writer mm. desperately, because he insists on doing everything. 
as we all know, and he insists on writing and overwriting and overwriting until it sounds terribly pretentious. You have to work terribly hard to make it sound real. And then he edits his film in such a way that he cuts everybody out of the story. Didn't even know. Going to the premiere. He was not seeing himself on the He was the lead in the movie. Yeah. He had no line. Reshaped around Jim Caviezel and sort of shaped the movie yeah. around that. But he gets, wow. um, Terry gets terribly involved in, in sort of poetic shots. And if he comes onto a bit, which are gorgeous, but then the story starts to start again. And of course, I, I would put in all sorts of different spots my character was suddenly not in the scene that I thought I was in, yeah. in the editing room. It's very strange. It is and odd. It completely unbalances everything. Mm -hmm. And a very emotional scene that I had um, suddenly was background noise. I could hear myself sing, saying it. <laughs> this long, wonderful, moving speech that I thought I was so fantastic in. Uh, I hear this is now background sort of score, way miles in the distance while something else is going on. <laughs> oh, my God. And Colin Farrell just said, Oh, you know, we're just going to be a couple of fucking ospreys. <laughs> <laughs> we're just going to shoot the fucking ospreys, don't we? We're not going to shoot us. <laughs> but he's, you know, I, he's... I had, he's to, I had to write him a letter. I wrote Terry a letter. Oh, you shit. did? Yeah, I gave him a shit. Yeah. Did you write I'll that? never work with him again, of course. Mm -hmm. I mean, he won't have me. No, he didn't. Oh, I told him, I thought, he said, you're so boring, you can only run. So I said, you've got to catch yourself and write it. <laughs> so, uh, my career with Mr. Malik is over. <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.